Bearing Witness, part of the Racial Reckoning Project, is a reflective dive into the week's events unfolding in this season of racial upheaval and, we hope, change. I'm Anthony Galloway, Executive Director of the Arts Us Center for the African Diaspora. And I'm Georgia Fort, an independent journalist. So if you're like me, you've got kiddos at home who ask a lot of questions. And those questions sometimes are, are with us fully. I can, I can wrap my head around them. And sometimes it's really hard to make sense of the world around us in a way that truly, not just that they understand, but is adequate enough to answer all the questions they have because a whole lot of stuff around us just don't make any daggone sense. We thought we would be further along the lines in many different areas. And unfortunately, I'm finding myself having to go back to my children and tell them, "Mm, we haven't really dealt with that yet, or we haven't really turned a corner on that yet. And they're starting to get frustrated. So that's why I'm glad to have somebody like Miss Georgia I can check in with to say, all right, can you help me make sense of the things that are happening around, at least a little way that I can have a good answer for my kiddo. So, Ms. Georgia, what are some of the things that we need to be staying close to and keep a, keeping watch over uh, this week as you do your coverage? Well, I know that most folks right now are watching the election in Minneapolis because, you know, I, I feel like this election, it, it symbolizes for some the change, the opportunity for change following the murder of George Floyd. Uh, I think this is a huge step for some uh, in, in a direction to see um, some some tangible change in, in the policing department. And so I've spoken with uh, folks in community on both sides of this issue, individuals who feel like it's necessary to vote no uh, so that the police can deter violence as we've seen more uh, violent crimes uh, week after week in the city of Minneapolis. And on on the other mm-hmm. side of that, I've heard from individuals who feel like the police system in Minneapolis has failed Black residents and it needs to transform into a system of public safety. So I think most people, Anthony, have been uh, following that along with the uh, mayoral election in Minneapolis as well. Uh, and so I think that this, it signifies uh, somewhat of a turning point for our city. You know, there's there's several questions that are making it to the ballot, not just uh, the one you're referencing around uh, voting yes or no to transitioning to that Office of Public Safety, um, but also on the ballots in both cities, I believe. And I think I, I saw you heard, heard some of your coverage on this, uh, um, is the... Uh, is rent control and some of the stabilizing decisions or questions around um, affordability in this in this COVID time. So again, there's that space of having to make progress on these issues surrounding policing at the same time as we are still in a pandemic, at the same time as people are still trying to get on their feet. Um, uh, as a result of it, as a sa- at the same time, is there are many battles on different fronts. So, you know, Given that there are 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 rallying and, and it's and it's interesting that they're not there's not predictability um, on who is on the side of voting yes or no. I think this has been an interesting piece looking at those who are weighing in. Is if for if you had an assumption about who was on which sides of this of this vote in terms of supporting as far as community leaders um, and thinkers and folks who are working on various issues in community, it's not as clear cut. 
Um, and so I'm curious, what are some of those surprising uh, perspectives that have, you know, of, of folks who have come through the mix? Yeah, I, I mean, people are on all sides of, of this issue. <laughs> Specifically on the public safety piece, I mean, uh, we've heard from Janae Bates, who is the communications director for Isaiah, who has been leading Yes for Minneapolis on the other side of that community debate, we saw Reverend McAfee, who said, "Vote no." Uh, we've mm-hmm. heard from uh, uh, um, we've heard from Dr. Nakima Levy Armstrong, who I, I believe is saying that she's voting no. Uh, filmmaker mm-hmm. D.A. Bullock, who is vote yes. Um, Sandra Samuels, who is vote no. Uh, on the other side of that, you have. Um, I believe his name is Jarrell Perry, who's running for mayor, who is vote yes. Uh, so, I mean, hmm. community leaders are really on on all sides of this issue. Uh, Chief Arredondo held a press conference um, saying that, of course, he's encouraging people to vote no. And he addressed a lot of the questions that he's been asked about what would happen to the police department if uh, the vote yes wins. Uh, does it mean that all of the police lose their jobs? Does it mean that, you know, so there's all of these questions, you know, uh, that folks had about what does it mean if a public uh, safety department is uh, what oversees the police department, you know? And and I think that there was this misunderstanding that the police department just all of a sudden overnight vanishes. But to your point, Anthony, the the issue on policing is is one piece of a a multi uh, faceted um issue that i think uh black specifically residents in the twin cities have been faced with i mean um you have these di- different systems uh that have uh, wor- really worked against us and and that is how we have uh, arrived at a place where we have all of these disparities. We have disparities in our health system, in our education system, in uh, in wealth. Uh, quite frankly, home ownership, and of yes, and the criminal justice system also. Uh, but there was hmm. this report that came out um, in the last week. It was an investigation done by uh, Care Eleven which showed that Black residents in the Twin Cities are three times more likely to be denied a mortgage, even when they have the same credit score and debt-to-income ratio as white applicants. How, how do we speak to that? How do, and how do we address that? And how do we overcome that barrier so that Black people in the Twin Cities cannot just, you know... Um, be in a community where, yeah, the rent is stabilized, but where we have an equal chance at home ownership and um, obtaining wealth for the next generation. You know, it, uh, I'm so glad you brought that up because this is a, this is a place where where many folks who want to raise these issues at necessary tables often face pushback, and that pushback often comes in a sense of of well, you know, trying to blame the folks themselves who are experiencing uh, the disservice. And your data, what you just spoke to, and even the data across education, across many other areas, um, you know, it, it underscore the fact that for the same circumstance, 
You know, if it's a if it's a place, if it's in terms of, of our policing for the same behaviors, we are treated very differently. So you cannot make the argument that somehow one group is more criminal than the other for the same behaviors. There's disparity. And that's what folks are lifting forward. What you just said on that and on that on the, on that um, on that research, which which is backed by many research in many other uh, areas, is that when you take the same exact setup, even the employee name test, which is continually done. You know, by by psychology students in different in different schools for their senior theses over and over again, um, you have the same thing playing out that ethnic sounding names don't get called back for interviews, even in some cases having much higher credential in terms of their resumes, let alone, you know, and I know we our guests later will be able to speak to this, um, you know, really well. But in an education system, when every measure that you want to make for parent involvement, whether it be social economic status, language barriers, there are disparities across all of those. And this is something that I don't think folks are are are. Um, I don't think it's coming into the conversation enough is that we're not we're not talking we're not just talking about systemic historical functions. We're talking about even when those are accounted for and folks are in a position to take full advantage of of this, quote unquote, American dream, that there are disparities and barriers even when you do all the things right. And 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 I I get passionate about this is because somebody said to me at one point that 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 a person is going to need to be Jesus himself in order to um in order to to move the dial on these unarmed police killings killings you couldn't have anybody who's more of an upstanding citizen than Fernando Castillo and he was still killed and then we had you know when even in the George Floyd as you were covering that trial we had to deal with all of these detractors who were trying to say well he should have just done something else and not focusing on the fact that he never should have died in the first place so you know as as you lay the data out as we make these decisions about policies um you know going forward I, in the back of my mind I keep coming back to this space is, is as folks think about these are they thinking about them from the standpoint of the disparities for the same exact behavior, same exact circumstance, or are, are we make are, are are some of the folks who are part, who are participating in this making decisions based off of these assumptions, these mental models that still put it uh, um, that still view black folks as 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 less human, as more criminal, as as less intelligent, and all of these other things that undergird these disparities? These these are some of the questions and wonderings that are coming up, just even listening to the data that you put forward. Yeah, I think that there are, again, people on both sides. I, I think that there are a number of people in community, black, white, um, and, and even, uh, even beyond that, who are actively trying to close the gap, right? Uh, but on the other side of that, I feel like, you know, just the other day on George Floyd's birthday, I made a post acknowledging what happened to him and where we are and also how we've kind of started to backslide in, in some areas. And here come the trolls. I mean, um, on LinkedIn specifically, I made a post and there were individuals, white men, who were attacking Still, George Floyd's character, even though the trial has gone before a judge and a jury and the determination is that he was murdered by Derek Chauvin in the court of law. Regardless of that determination, there are still people in our society, 
in our community here in the Twin Cities who do dehumanize George Floyd and only look at him as what his criminal past was. Uh, I mean, when you have relatives who um, have been incarcerated or found guilty of some type of crime and, and you understand the motivating factors behind why they were in the situation and why they made the bad decisions that they made, it's a lot easier to uh, humanize um, a person who has made a couple of bad decisions, right? Um, maybe for other people who don't have that lived experience, they come from a perfect family. Nobody's ever, you know, been in that kind of situation. Maybe it's a little bit harder, but also, I mean, when we do start to look at the numbers again, to your point, Anthony, we realize that maybe it's not, maybe you have a perfect criminal history, not because you never committed a crime, but because of the color of your skin has allowed you the privilege to have cops that will look the other way or to have a judge who will give you a warning or a slap on the wrist instead of an actual conviction. Or even if you are convicted, we know when we look at the statistics on sentencing, right? So, uh, you know, I like to remain hopeful and, and realize that, yeah, there are some people who are working to to mitigate these disparities, but we can't be naive and act like they don't exist. The police chief in St. Paul um, just gave notification that um, he's stepping down. Now, this isn't new. In fact, except for uh, police chief William Finney, who was the first black police chief, um, I think 94 um, is when he first uh, became chief. Um, Almost every chief does one term, one six-year term, and then they step down. So there's nothing extraordinary about that, except that um, folks are using this, and I've, I've been 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 noticing um, in some of the chat. Folks are using this moment to um, to to make it again connect to the unrest. You know, you've got folks who are saying, you know, this is a this is a product of not supporting the police, and so the police chief is stepping down, even though the police chief's own resignation message didn't say anything to that effect. Um, and some folks see this chief as somebody who actually, you know, got it more right than some of his other peers. And so, again, we have yet another city who is coming in uh, to a conversation around um, policy and policing um, that's going to be interesting to watch going forward, in addition to all of the um, electoral pieces that you that you have alluded to already. Um, I'm curious, going, you know, in, with this, with the with the vote coming in Minneapolis and the um, the the next set of trials that will be coming up soon. Um, I'm really curious how this is going to shake out when our attention yet again turns to George Floyd's death um, in the prosecution of those officers, let alone uh, moving forward on Dante, Dante Wright's case. And unfortunately, of course, what we heard about um, Winston Smith's case. Um, I'm curious to see where you, where, what are some of the questions you're going to be looking at as we move towards those timeframes? Well, the biggest thing that... I'm curious about is the federal investigation because the Department of Justice didn't just decide to investigate the Minneapolis Police Department because of what happened to George Floyd. I mean, when you have a a federal entity like that looking at at patterns and practices, they're not just deploying their resources 
uh, for no reason. There was some indication that mm. something was happening. And so what I'll be, you know, asking and paying close attention to is what are their findings and what is going to be the evidence that you is used in the court of law when when um, the federal trials start. And so you have to remember that there's there's two different um, the the state trials and the federal trial. So you have Chauvin's already had his state trial. The other three officers have to go through their state trial, and then all four have to go through a federal trial. Mm. So what I you know we we probably have a good understanding of the evidence that will be used by the state. I can't imagine it would be too different than what the state presented for uh, the Chauvin trial. Um, But now in terms of the federal investigation, they're doing their own investigating and Communities United Against Police Brutality worked so, so diligently over the last few months. Uh, Michelle Gross, who is the the president and founder of that organization, turned over 1,100 complaints from citizens uh, against MPD over to uh, the federal um, entity that's doing the investigation against MPD. So uh, it's, it's going to be very, it's going to be very intense, I think, when um, that evidence comes forth. We know that there were more than 15 complaints filed against Derek Chauvin. A few of them were excessive use of force. And if they release the body camera footage from those incidences, it's going to be traumatizing for some people. Mm. When they start, you know, digging under rocks and sharing stories of other people who have had uh, fatal encounters with MPD or excessive uh, uses of force incidences, uh, it's going to be hard. It's going to be hard to... It's going to be hard to uh, grapple with that reality, um, especially if they're, the vote no wins, right? So if everything stays the same, then in a few months, all of this stuff is going to hit the fan. It's going to start to feel like nothing has changed and uh, we're going to be exposed to all of these other incidences that none of us knew about, right? So hmm. yeah, that's that's what I'm paying attention to. You know, all of this in the backdrop of Kyle Rittenhouse recently, uh, the judge in that case um, of the uh, the the man who who came to a protest uh, with and approached about it ahead of time and shot several protesters with police just standing by watching it happen. Um, a judge has just ruled in that case that they that the prosecution cannot refer to uh, the protesters as protesters. Um, they can use. He, I think the 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 quote is that they, that they can use things like um, rioters or or several other things in a very clearly uh, politically maligned space. Um, and so we're going to have to make all sense of all of that. Our guest today, um, looters. Um, yes, absolutely, and other things. Our guest today. Um, you know, while we are trying to make sense of this, for me. From a as a pastor in community, you know, in a, in a communal sense, and you as a as an independent journalist, we've got folks who have to make to help babies and systems make sense of this in our education sphere. And so, I want to bring in our guest, Sharice uh, Ayers, is an educator, education scholar, um, just just 
all around, I consider her, um, you know, uh, just a, a, an educational mentor, just in terms of watching in her lead by example and, and, and seeing the work and how she treats our babies and, and, and helps to build a world for them. I could say a lot, but I want to bring in our guests and get her to uh, weigh in, not only on what she's heard us discuss so far, but also, you know, how it's going for her in community. So, so Ms. Sharice Ayers, can you come and introduce yourself to the Bearing Witness uh, community? Um, tell us a little bit about yourself and what's been coming up for you as you've been listening to Georgia and I talk. Well, first off, thank you for uh, such a an awesome introduction. I'm, I'm humbled uh, every time you introduce me, Anthony. Um, but again, my name is Sharice Ayers and I am a career educator. Um, I've taught middle school and high school for a lot of years and uh, I'm currently serving as an interim principal uh, of an elementary school in the Twin Cities. I'm also working on a PhD in ed policy and leadership. Okay. And, uh, <laughs> I was waiting for you to talk about the about, about that educational doctorate because you know I love I love to call my sisters doctors in this piece. All it's right. coming. So what's been coming up for you as you hear some of the issues and the topics that George and I have been talking to so far? You know, the hard thing about all of this is for for our children, they can't process this. Um and, and the way that it comes out is often physical. Um, and we have seen an increase in aggression, I would say, in a lot of our students. And, um, and that's globally. Um, and so one of the things I, I tell parents a lot is in kindergarten, um, you, you do tend to see more physical aggression. And it is because children do not have all of the language to process what they're experiencing. And so they'll hit or they'll lash out or, or throw things and, you know, they throw something that we would call a tantrum. Um, and as students get older and have more words to articulate what they're feeling and, and have more coping mechanisms, then you see less of that. Um, and so what I've been telling a lot of adults right now is that our world is hurting and our children are a reflection of exactly what's happening in the world. So the things that we're seeing on TV or hearing on the radio or even experiencing, you know, firsthand, those things our children are experiencing, too. And they don't have the language. They don't have the capacity to process that. And so it comes out as frustration. It comes out as anger. It comes out as 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 this, again, this physical aggression that's hard to process. Um and I find it even hard for myself to process. There are times I just turn the radio off. I can't hear anymore. I Or just, it's time to put on Janet Jackson or something. <laughs> um, because I just, I, I can't do it anymore. And I know that when I come into work, I have to be able to show up and give 100% to our babies. And for me to do that, I have to go to a happy place and and be able to hold on to that. And sometimes to just shut out all the things that are going on in the world. Yeah, absolutely. And when you are working with children, you know, over the last year and a half, two years, I feel like uh, on top of the pandemic, all of the the protesting and, you know, police killings that we've had in our community, uh, what have been some of those um, moments that you've shared with students? Uh, could could you share any spe- anything specific, you know, students who maybe have, have struggled um, in, in processing everything that's happening around them? 
Yeah. So just a couple of things. So and, and I've been in this uh, principal role for about a month now. And prior to that, I was the supervisor of equity uh, in our school district. And so so first I'll talk about things I've seen with, you know, adults even in processing things because the adults impact the children. You know, if if as an adult, if you are happy, healthy and whole, you're able to impact kids um, on that level and, and help them to be happy, healthy, and whole. And so, you know, when the the Chauvin trial was happening, you know, and we think about the people that we work with and the people in the community. Um, so actually, Derek Chauvin lives within the boundaries of our school district. And so there was um, a lot of impact of that uh, in dealing with the adults. Um, in terms of the students, there was a student protest um, and it was a statewide, I think it was a statewide protest. It might've even been a nationwide protest, but I know, it, no, I think it was a statewide protest. And a lot of our high school students participated in that. We have two high schools um, and one of them um, for sure showed up and those high school students showed up in a way where they wanted to have their voices heard uh, about how they were feeling about uh, police violence um, against black people. Um, and so I, I always love and, and like to lean into opportunities where students are showing up and advocating for themselves. Um, and then think as it relates to um, our younger students and, and moments that they've had, um, not too long ago, there was a tragedy in our community where um, some children, uh, middle school, high school children, were killed in a car accident that had some involvement with police. And that has had ripple effects throughout our community where so many of the children were connected to other children in other schools. Um, and again, like a lot of our kids don't have words for that to, to express their pain and express their trauma. And I was actually um, talking with a, a colleague a little earlier today, and he was sharing that like a kindergartner talked to him about um, how she knew this person who or one of the, the children who had, had died in this car accident and and how sad she was about it. And, you know, talking to her about being able to to process death and that these things happen and we have friends and we lose them and it makes us feel really bad. And um, and just wondering, like, is that too much for a five year old to handle and to talk about? And, you know, it's a part of our, our world. It's a part of our, our lives. And as uncomfortable as it is for us to talk about it and process it, it's important that we um, open ourselves up to be available to have those conversations and hold space for our, our babies. And sometimes words don't do. Sometimes we need to hum. Sometimes we need to sing. Sometimes we need to hug it out, uh, which is kind of hard in a pandemic. Um, <laughs> but there's there's so many things that that we need to do and that I think that we have space for culturally um, that a lot of times we we ignore um, or, or don't think it's appropriate. But like really just, you know, and I know you can relate to this, Anthony, just uh, in the old church, you know, we're singing or we're outlining hymns um, or scripture, you know, um, and giving space for that. Uh, that, that those things are healing and uh, we have to, to show our babies how to heal themselves, which means we have to teach ourselves how to heal ourselves too. You know, 
I, you know, I hadn't connected the fact that you were um, working in the district where um, those two those teens were killed in the in the in the chase in Maplewood area. So um, I know we had talked about that in, in, in Georgia. You had covered that pretty, pretty, pretty closely too. You're the one who broke that news for me. Um, and so um, I hadn't made that connection, but, but what you said about, um, you know, culturally, some of the things that we do and have in place culturally that we ignore. I, I, I won't forget, and, I, and this story comes to mind just because one of your babies was, was, was in the mix. Um, you know, we sat this summer trying to figure out what are some things that we can do. And, and we kind of devised this, um, <laughs> scary movie nights where we would just get together and we would watch, um, you know, we would watch scary movies that parents would, would okay them to watch. Right. Um, and what I saw happening is in, in, in what it was is not the movie night itself. It wasn't the movie part of the night. Um, but there was this moment where these kid, where the kiddos would would sit around the table and they would just begin to bust jokes, um, you know, at each other and and just poke at each other in, in ways. And not, you know, I was there to make sure that they wasn't going too far, right, or anything like that. Um, and they never did. But what I've remembered, what it made me recall, was the times outside. As I was at Central High School, the times outside the swim, the door where you come out the swim, the swimming uh, pool door. And we would sit out there and we would tell ruthless, just if there were any adults there, we probably would have in our current society, probably would not would have would have would have been good. But what was interesting and hilarious is um, just like these kiddos were busting jokes on each other, they stopped. It was it was like there was this buffer to the world that they knew was out there. And and they, you know, we play the dozens. It's a cultural thing, right? And it doesn't, you know, we 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 have some some ways if we're doing it truly that'll help protect folks from going too far. But we also have some cultural parameters that um, that help us be resilient to them. And that's just one example. But it's got what you said has got me thinking about the 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 everyday things that we we forgot we could do. How many times do we get together and just um, you know laugh? I I, I think. Uh, of of that TikTok where where there's a group of black women sitting in a stairwell and it's that challenge where each person has to copy the person in front of them who's saying something. Um, I think it's the uh, it's Lady Gaga's um, uh, that whole thing, mm, right? Mm-hmm. But it gets worse and worse, and you know that the last person in this lineup is the person everybody knows is tone deaf, and they can't wait for them to sing it. And it's just a moment of pure joy. We, like we get together and do things like that, um, or or even just making beats on a desk, um, which was a point of of huge issue with a lot of teachers when I was growing up. Who the moment they heard anything like that would come and try to stomp it out, um, and they had no clue that I could either go upside the head of somebody else and do and throw one of the tantrums that you were speaking of earlier and be self destructive. Or I can beat it. I, I I can I can make a beat on a desk, and um, and 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 get it out that way, right? I, I think it's a fascinating point that we don't take advantage of the cultural things that we've built to take care to take care of ourselves in this as much as we should. And and you know uh, you brought up some really interesting points just there um, as it relates to what it looks like when we take care of ourselves at school. And we talk about identification and and representation and how that matters and um, and who are we serving in school and and 
and who is being served? Who are we serving and who is doing the, the service? Who are our teachers are and, and the, the disproportionality or the disparities between um, our teachers and students? And we have lots and lots of white teachers and our students are increasingly um, growing in populations of students of color. And so if you, as, um, as the adult in the room, do not recognize beating on a desk um, as a coping mechanism or as a way of communication, and if you just view it as uh, a distraction, then we have problems. And we talk about some of those disparities that Georgia was mentioning earlier and how they show up in education is uh, with suspension or, or other um, discipline and how you know Black students are eight times more likely to receive discipline than white students, um, even when you account for all other factors. Um, but, but again, looking at the needs and being able to recognize different cultures and, um, and, and different cultural practices and how they show up. Our, our school systems nationwide are very steeped in whiteness and the ways that we do things and the systems that we have are very steeped in whiteness, even, you know, from small things like, you know, the idea that a classroom is supposed to be quiet. And that if a classroom is quiet, then that means that work is happening or things are productive. Whereas I always preferred a classroom that was full of life and and I wanted my kids to talk. And there's research that says, you know, the person who's talking the most is learning the most. And so I always wanted my students to, to talk. Um, and if, you know, beating on the desk is a problem, you have to show the kids, OK, this is when you can beat on the desk. Or how do you incorporate that into your lesson? If you know you've got students who like to get up and move and, and make music, how do you incorporate that into the work that you're doing to engage them? And that is then healing, you know? Um, and it, it shows our students that you can show up and be yourself and be an academic and be a scholar. And, uh, and that scholarly thinking and academic thinking doesn't have to just look one way, that it can look like you and sound like you. And as an educator, when you're faced with those kinds of disparities for children who who look like you, uh, how do you combat that? How do you um, institute different practices within your school or district uh, to be able to um, help close some of those disparities? It is so hard. It's so hard. Um, so I like to start with the foundation of critical self-reflection as we look at equity work. So again, before I started this job as the interim principal, I was the supervisor of equity. And a lot of the professional development that we did was around critical self-reflection, because if you don't know who you are and if you don't constantly um, look at yourself in the mirror and and interrogate your own thoughts and your own beliefs about things, you can't teach children. Um, so that's one thing, starting with that critical self-reflection. Um, and then there's a lot of tools out there um, around uh, culturally responsive teaching, the, the other CRT, right? Um, culturally responsive teaching. And, and so there's, there's some tools and some strategies that you can give teachers um, but again, I always like to start with critical self-reflection, being able to identify whiteness and call it out 
um, and not being afraid to say it. Like, let's not be afraid to use words like white supremacy culture. And because uh, if we're afraid of it, then we can't see it. And if we're if we decide, oh, we're just not going to talk about it, then we don't see it. And then it's not there. And then I can blame the children. Um, but really trying to get people to recognize their own power and the power that they have to do to do better and to do more when you start with a foundation of critical self-reflection. And then, again, exploring um, those other topics and making it a part of your life. Like if you as a teacher or anyone who works in a school, if you're just doing this work because your school said, okay, it's time to do our equity work, um, then we don't need you teaching in school. Like I I want you to be hungry for equity enough to uh, make it a part of your life and, and change your life. Like you have to decide that equity work is essential for me to be a good quality human being. And I need it for my family, um, that I'm willing to have awkward conversations at Thanksgiving dinner with my uncle. Cause everybody got an uncle who says inappropriate stuff, not my uncles, of course, but everybody got an uncle who says something inappropriate or <laughs> is, is doing something. And, uh, and, and you, you've got to be able to challenge those, those perceptions and challenge your bias and, and it's hard. And I have a lot of teachers say, oh, it's so hard. And I'm like, yes, it is. And guess what? You can do hard things and you will do hard things. And just like we tell our students, hey, you can do hard things. Guess what? As the grownups, we have to do that, too. We have to take that on as our homework. And, and so I, I encourage um, adults to really take a look at themselves and, and their biases. I hope I answered your question. This, there's there's so much there. There's so much there. Um, and, you know, one of the things that's got me thinking of is how important what you just said is for all of our babies, right? That in the context of, of how I, I lash out, um, you know, or how I might use, um, how I might do things to cope with what's happening when I don't have the language for it. Um, I, I think about what happens in, in the white students that I serve, you know, if I get somebody who's doing critical reflection early on and I have white students who can who can attest to that, then when they get to me in in high school for the civil rights research experience, when they get to me um, as college students or they get to me in the spiritual care center space, um, they're not coming to me with this deep sense of despair and frustration of about one, never having had this conversation prior to this moment. There is deep frustration from my white students when they get to um, to these moments and say, I never learned that. They're, why didn't I learn that earlier? Why couldn't I have this conversation earlier? Um, for, for various reasons, whether they grew up in a household that was um, that took a colorblind ideology, I'm just not going to talk about it, and that way I won't mess up, or or one that felt deep shame because of their inculcation of their own family history, and they didn't want to talk about it for any of the reasons. They get to they get to us later, um, and hopefully they get to us later, right? Because we know what the data says about most of our mass shooters in both school settings and in, in community settings is, is they're, they're white and they're male and they're often from experiences that didn't have um, the, the, the type of engagement that you're talking about, which I think is, 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 is really important. So you hit on a whole lot of important points there. Well, you know, and the, the other part of that is people are afraid of discomfort. Like people will often really back away from conversations that they find uncomfortable and think that that's okay and that we shouldn't be having uncomfortable conversations. And um, I did a a training once um, and I called it was a, a racial equity training and I called it rest, relaxation and race. 
because I and I it had a spa theme and I thought about how when you go to the spa and you get a massage and uh, especially if you're like me and you carry a lot of tension and you get that massage and it hurts and it's so uncomfortable but it feels good at the same time because it's good to your body. And so when we have these built up toxins in our muscles or these built up toxins in our bodies, we have to do something painful and uncomfortable to work that out and get that out. And so, you know, I, I really work with adults and children on having uncomfortable conversations and knowing that discomfort brings us growth and it brings us change and development. Absolutely. Mm. And, you know, I, I think so often when we talk about the education system and the reform that's needed and these disparities, you know, there is either these teachers who are are heroes um, or these teachers who are, are failing our students, but we cannot leave out the role and the, the critical role that parents play in this equation. Hmm. My own stuff, right? How do I, you know, bring my own stuff? Um, I send my kids to a school you used to be, you used to to, to be a principal for, and they they were um, boohoo crying when they realized that by the time they got there, you wasn't gonna be there. Um, and so um, it, it um, but 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 your question, Georgia, as as you often do, just kind of kicked me into that gut bucket of self reflection. And, and realizing how, what are the conversations I'm having with my kiddos and how am I helping them to bridge the space in an equation? They're, they're at a school now um, that they love for, it, for what it does for them academically more. However, they're now encountering racialized issues that they did not have at their previous school, which was, which was, um, which was had more black kids at it. Let me just say it like that. Um, and so there were some cultural things that were present that aren't present now. And and we're having to 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 do a different type of parenting um, as a, as a result of that, and so that's that's one of the ways that's showing up. Your question, Georgia, is showing up for me. And and one thing I talk to teachers about with that is you you're not here to save the children, you're not here to save them, and you're here to have high expectations for them and nurture them for sure. Um, but they don't need saving, and and we have to bring parents and family in as a part of the team. Um, You know, as a teacher, you may have them for nine months. You know, if you loop with them, maybe you have them, you know, for two years, but they belong to their family and you have got to partner with family to make anything work. You've got to to see the children um, as you would. You know, it's funny. Some people say I, I see I, I think about kids like I think about my own kids, right? I treat kids like I would treat my own. And, you know, I don't want anybody to treat my kids like they treat their kids. I want them to treat them like I treat them. Because, hmm. you know, sometimes you take care of other people's stuff better than you take care of your own stuff. You know, and if I have an issue with my own children, there are certain things I can say to my kids that I can't say to other people's kids. And I can say it to my kids because they know without a shadow of a doubt that I love them. I feed them, I care for them, and we've been at this thing for some years. So there are some things and ways that I can treat my kids that I wouldn't do to other people's children. And so I I think it's important that we have reverence for that as educators that, you know, because a lot of times I'll I'll have teachers and and I, you know, and not in a particular place, but over the years who will say, um, well, me and this student have a really good relationship. 
And that's why I could say this to them. But then if you talk to the student, the student didn't feel it. They didn't receive what was said the way that the teacher intended for it to to be felt. And it's like you thought you had a really good relationship with that student, but you didn't. And you're out here harming children and Mm. you don't know you're harming children because you're, oh, I'm treating them like I would treat my kids. No, you got you have to treat them like they are someone else's children because you don't have that foundational relationship with them. And a lot of times kids don't have the the words or they're, they're not able to advocate for themselves and actually say, this is how I feel when you do these things as mm. the adult. And so they just smile or, or laugh or don't say anything, or you'll have ones that will lash out and well, then it's a problem. You know, and then it's, well, they, you know, the kid did this. And it's like, well, wait a second. What did you do? That's where we get back to that critical self-reflection. What did you do? How, how, how are your words and your actions contributing to what we're seeing here? Um, and really just make sure that, you know, when we're handling our kids that, or other people's children, that we really do handle them with kid gloves and, and, and take care of them. I'm, I'm just going to speak into existence. Soon to be doctor. Sharice Ayers. Um, we um, we a um, always end our show with checking in how you are being you, um, and 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 I've we've been together at, uh, answering questions like this before, but but we want to check in as we close our show and check in with you and say how are you being you in this moment of racial reckoning in this moment of 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 angst and anxiety and all the things that are happening around. How are you being you? And we'll start with you and then we'll, we'll, we'll circle around. Um, you know, even in, in this time of racial reckoning and, and disparities all around, I am at heart an eternal optimist. And so um, I just try to bring that optimism and sunshine wherever I go, um, especially when I come to work, uh, even if I'm not feeling it. And so I'm always fantastic or I'm great. And um, and I like to just tell other people, and it's going to be a great day. Make it a great day. And even when it's hard, it's still a great day because it's another chance to to get it right. Because um, we we need that. We need that love. Oh, Shay, thank you so much. Miss Georgia, how are you being you in this moment? I have been doing a lot of uh, classes lately, Anthony, um, which is is kind of new for me. Classes uh, with different companies and organizations across the Twin Cities um, that are interested in bringing the idea of changing the narrative uh, within their workplace culture. And so, oh, so it, you're doing it, the teaching of these classes. Yeah, yeah. It's been really okay. interesting um, that, you know, people have seen my approach to journalism and realized that, you know, narrative is not just created by the media, uh, but how we internalize that and share that in our own, you know, social groups and, you know, those water cooler conversations in the workplace. And so, yeah, it's been interesting to um, take this deep dive into looking at the history even of how media has been used to perpetuate harmful narratives uh, in the Black community and then, you know, translate that to modern day and equip people with the tools to 
deconstruct those narratives when they're harmful and and not based on truth, right? And then teach them, empower them how to create alternative um, narratives that are also based on facts. And so, yeah, it's been it's been interesting to be in community in that way. It's it's a new aspect of my work that I I'm really appreciating in this moment. Thank you for sharing that. Um, uh, since it's y'all, I can say this, um, and, and, and you'll, you'll get it. Um, I've been being me in this moment right now by picking a lot of fights. Uh, <laughs> you, by just not starting you. Stuff. Just, just, you just love and not stuff. a fighter. What you talking about? <laughs> <laughs> um, and, 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 well, so, so what I'm, what I mean is there are these moments where you can not say, Something you can just let something go and not ask a follow up question, um, especially you know not unravel a person's whole argument or things like that. Um, and I've been finding myself channeling my wife's energy um, and uh, just starting stuff, you know, and not letting stuff go and saying, you know, where'd that come from or why did you say it like that or what about this situation here? And what I've been finding is. Um, it hasn't necessarily made my conversations go or people call me back or, or folks feel good walking away. Um, but I've been feeling better. <laughs> it's that discomfort. Like it's okay for people to be uncomfortable. That's how they grow. Good for you. Yeah. And so, and so, you know, it's, 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 it's been fascinating to see how that goes. Um, you know, I, I never, I, you y'all know me, I'm not going to disrespect nobody. I'm not going to go, you know, Put pushing nobody and, and and put them out or nothing like that, um, but I'm not letting it go. Um, and it's been fun to see how that how that works, especially in this new role um, and with this new title. <laughs> um, what folks will allow me to push push to and through? Um, it's very interesting. Sister Sharice, Doctor Future Doctor Sharice Ayers, I'm so glad you joined with us. We're going to end like we always do, and I'm going to kick it to Miss Georgia. Thank you so much for being on Bearing Witness with us today. In the words of Dr. Joy Lewis, may the revolution be healing. This is Bearing Witness. Bearing Witness with Anthony and Georgia is a production of Racial Reckoning, the Arc of Justice, a journalism project created and supported by Ampers, diverse radio for Minnesota's communities, in partnership with KMLJ Radio, the Minnesota Humanities Center, with support from the Minnesota Arts and Cultural Heritage Fund.